Section 5 being Book 2, Chapters 1, 2 and 3 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 2, Chapters 1, 2 and 3. Book 2. Containing scenes of matrimonial felicity in different degrees of life and various other transactions during the first two years after the marriage between Captain Bliffill and Miss Bridget Allworthy. Chapter 1. Showing what kind of history this is, what it is like, and what it is not like. Though we have properly enough entitled this our work a history, and not a life, nor an apology for a life, as is more in fashion, yet we intend in it rather to pursue the method of those writers who profess to disclose the revolutions of countries than to imitate the painful and voluminous historian who to preserve the regularity of his series thinks himself obliged to fill up as much paper with the detail of months and years in which nothing remarkable happened as he employs upon those notable eras when the greatest scenes have been transacted on the human stage such histories as these do, in reality, very much resemble a newspaper, which consists of just the same number of words, whether there be any news in it or not. They may likewise be compared to a stage-coach, which performs constantly the same course, empty as well as full. The writer, indeed, seems to think himself obliged to keep even pace with time, whose amanuensis he is and like his master travels as slowly through the centuries of monkish dullness when the world seems to have been asleep as through that bright and busy age so nobly distinguished by the excellent latin poet ad confligendum venientibus undique poenis omnia cum belli trepido concussa tumultu horrida contremuere subaltis aeteris auris Indubioque fuit sub utrorum regna cadendum omnibus humanis eset terraque marique of which we wish we could give our reader a more adequate translation than that by mr creech when dreadful carthage frighted rome with arms and all the world was shook with fierce alarms whilst undecided yet which part should fall which nation rise the glorious lord of all now it is our purpose in the ensuing pages to pursue a contrary method when any extraordinary scene presents itself as we trust will often be the case we shall spare no pains nor paper to open it at large to our reader but if whole years should pass without producing anything worthy his notice we shall not be afraid of a chasm in our history but shall hasten on to matters of consequence and leave such periods of time totally unobserved these are indeed to be considered as blanks in the grand lottery of time. We, therefore, who are the registers of that lottery, shall imitate those sagacious persons who deal in that which is drawn at Guildhall, and who never trouble the public with the many blanks they dispose of. But when a great prize happens to be drawn, the newspapers are presently filled with it, and the world is sure to be informed at whose office it was sold.' 
Indeed, commonly, two or three different offices lay claim to the honour of having disposed of it, by which, I suppose, the adventurers are given to understand that certain brokers are in the secrets of fortune, and indeed of her cabinet council. My reader, then, is not to be surprised if, in the course of this work, he shall find some chapters very short, and others altogether as long, some that contain only the time of a single day, and others that comprise years. In a word, if my history sometimes seems to stand still, and sometimes to fly, for all which I shall not look on myself as accountable to any court of critical jurisdiction whatever, for as I am in reality the founder of a new province of writing, so I am at liberty to make what laws I please therein. And these laws, my readers, whom I consider as my subjects, are bound to believe in and obey, with which that they may readily and cheerfully comply, I do hereby assure them that I shall principally regard their ease and advantage in all such institutions, for I do not, like a jure divino tyrant, imagine that they are my slaves or my commodity. I am indeed set over them for their own good only, and was created for their use, and not they for mine." nor do I doubt, while I make their interest the great rule of my writings, they will unanimously concur in supporting my dignity, and in rendering me all the honour I shall deserve or desire. CHAPTER Two: RELIGIOUS CAUTIONS AGAINST SHOWING TOO MUCH FAVOUR TO BASTARDS, AND A GREAT DISCOVERY MADE BY MRS. DEBORAH WILKINS. Eight months after the celebration of the nuptials between Captain Bliffill and Miss Bridget Allworthy, a young lady of great beauty, merit, and fortune, was Miss Bridget, by reason of a fright, delivered of a fine boy. The child was, indeed, to all appearance perfect, but the midwife discovered it was born a month before its full time. Though the birth of an heir of his beloved sister was a circumstance of great joy to Mr. Allworthy, yet it did not alienate his affections from the little foundling, to whom he had been godfather, had given his own name of Thomas, and whom he had hitherto seldom failed of visiting at least once a day in his nursery. He told his sister, if she pleased, the new-born infant should be bred up together with little Tommy, to which she consented, though with some little reluctance, for she had truly a great complacence for her brother, and hence she had always behaved towards the foundling, with rather more kindness than ladies of rigid virtue can sometimes bring themselves to show to these children, who, however innocent, may be truly called the living monuments of incontinence. The captain could not so easily bring himself to bear what he condemned as a fault in Mr. Allworthy. He gave him frequent hints that to adopt the fruits of sin was to give countenance to it. He quoted several texts, for he was well read in scripture, such as, He visits the sins of the fathers upon the children, and The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge, etc. Whence he argued the legality of punishing the crime of the parent on the bastard. He said, though the law did not positively allow the destroying such base-born children, yet it held them to be the children of nobody, that the church considered them as the children of nobody, and that at the best they ought to be brought up to the lowest and vilest offices of the commonwealth. 
Mr. Allworthy answered to all this, and much more which the captain had urged on this subject, that, however guilty the parents might be, the children were certainly innocent, that, as to the texts he had quoted, the former of them was a particular denunciation against the Jews for the sin of idolatry, of relinquishing and hating their heavenly king, and the latter was parabolically spoken, and rather intended to denote the certain and necessary consequences of sin than any express judgment against it. But to represent the Almighty as avenging the sins of the guilty on the innocent was indecent, if not blasphemous, as it was to represent him acting against the first principles of natural justice, and against the original notions of right and wrong, which he himself had implanted in our minds, by which we were to judge not only in all matters which were not revealed, but even of the truth of revelation itself. He said he knew many held the same principles with the captain on this head, but he was himself firmly convinced to the contrary, and would provide in the same manner for this poor infant as if a legitimate child had had the fortune to have been found in the same place. While the captain was taking all opportunities to press these and such like arguments, to remove the little foundling from Mr. Allworthy's, of whose fondness for him he began to be jealous, Mrs. Deborah had made a discovery which in its event threatened at least to prove more fatal to poor Tommy than all the reasonings of the captain. Whether the insatiable curiosity of this good woman had carried her on to that business, or whether she did it to confirm herself in the good graces of Mrs. Bliffill, who, notwithstanding her outward behaviour to the foundling, frequently abused the infant in private, and her brother too for his fondness to it, I will not determine, but she had now, as she conceived, fully detected the father of the foundling. Now, as this was a discovery of great consequence, it may be necessary to trace it from the fountain-head. We shall therefore very minutely lay open those previous matters by which it was produced, and for that purpose we shall be obliged to reveal all the secrets of a little family with which my reader is at present entirely unacquainted, and of which the economy was so rare and extraordinary that I fear it will shock the utmost credulity of many married persons. CHAPTER Three, THE DESCRIPTION OF A DOMESTIC GOVERNMENT FOUNDED UPON RULES DIRECTLY CONTRARY TO THOSE OF ARISTOTLE. My reader may please to remember he hath been informed that Jenny Jones had lived some years with a certain schoolmaster, who had, at her earnest desire, instructed her in Latin, in which, to do justice to her genius, she had so improved herself that she was become a better scholar than her master. Indeed, though this poor man had undertaken a profession to which learning must be allowed necessary, this was the least of his commendations. He was one of the best-natured fellows in the world, and was at the same time master of so much pleasantry and humour, that he was reputed the wit of the country, and all the neighbouring gentlemen were so desirous of his company, that, as denying was not his talent, he spent much time at their houses which he might with more emolument have spent in his school. It may be imagined that a gentleman so qualified and so disposed was in no danger of becoming formidable to the learned seminaries of Eton or Westminster. To speak plainly, his scholars were divided into two classes, in the upper of which was a young gentleman, the son of a neighbouring squire, who at the age of seventeen was just entered into his syntaxis, 
and in the lower was a second boy of the same gentleman, who, together with seven parish boys, was learning to read and write. The stipend arising hence would hardly have indulged the schoolmaster in the luxuries of life, had he not added to this office those of clerk and barber, and had not Mr. Allworthy added to the whole an annuity of ten pound, which the poor man received every Christmas, and with which he was enabled to cheer his heart during that sacred festival. Among his other treasures the pedagogue had a wife, whom he had married out of Mr. Allworthy's kitchen for her fortune, viz. twenty pound, which she had there amassed. This woman was not very amiable in her person. Whether she sat to my friend Hogarth or no, I will not determine, but she exactly resembled the young woman who is pouring out her mistress's tea in the third picture of the harlot's progress. She was, besides, a professed follower of that notable sect founded by Xantippe of old, by means of which she became more formidable in the school than her husband, for, to confess the truth, he was never master there, or anywhere else in her presence." Though her countenance did not denote much natural sweetness of temper, yet this was, perhaps, somewhat soured by a circumstance which generally poisons matrimonial felicity, for children are rightly called the pledges of love, and her husband, though they had been married nine years, had given her no such pledges, a default for which he had no excuse, either from age or health, being not yet thirty years old, and what they call a jolly, brisk young man. Hence arose another evil, which produced no little uneasiness to the poor pedagogue, of whom she maintained so constant a jealousy, that he durst hardly speak to one woman in the parish, for the least degree of civility, or even correspondence with any female, was sure to bring his wife upon her back and his own. In order to guard himself against matrimonial injuries in her own house, as she kept one maid-servant, she always took care to choose her out of that order of females whose faces are taken as a kind of security for their virtue, of which number Jenny Jones, as the reader hath been before informed, was one. As the face of this young woman might be called pretty good security of the before-mentioned kind, and as her behaviour had been always extremely modest, which is the certain consequence of understanding in women, she had passed above four years at Mr. Partridge's, for that was the schoolmaster's name, without creating the least suspicion in her mistress. Nay, she had been treated with uncommon kindness, and her mistress had permitted Mr. Partridge to give her those instructions which have been before commemorated. But it is with jealousy as with gout. When such distempers are in the blood, there is never any security against their breaking out, and that often on the slightest occasion, and when least suspected. Thus it happened to Mrs. Partridge, who had submitted four years to her husband's teaching this young woman, and had suffered her often to neglect her work in order to pursue her learning. For passing by one day, as the girl was reading, and her master leaning over her, the girl, I know not for what reason, suddenly started up from her chair, and this was the first time that suspicion ever entered into the head of her mistress. This did not, however, at that time discover itself, but lay lurking in her mind like a concealed enemy who waits for a reinforcement of additional strength before he openly declares himself, and proceeds upon hostile operations. 
and such additional strength soon arrived to corroborate her suspicion, for not long after, the husband and wife being at dinner, the master said to his maid, Da mihi aliquid potum, upon which the poor girl smiled, perhaps at the badness of the Latin, and when her mistress cast her eyes on her, blushed, possibly with a consciousness of having laughed at her master. Mrs. Partridge upon this immediately fell into a fury, and discharged the trencher on which she was eating, at the head of poor Jenny, crying out, "'You impudent whore! Do you play tricks with my husband before my face?' And at the same instant rose from her chair with a knife in her hand, with which, most probably, she would have executed very tragical vengeance, had not the girl taken the advantage of being nearer the door than her mistress, and avoided her fury by running away. For as to the poor husband, whether surprise had rendered him motionless, or fear, which is full as probable, had restrained him from venturing at any opposition, he sat staring and trembling in his chair, nor did he once offer to move or speak, till his wife, returning from the pursuit of Jenny, made some defensive measures necessary for his own preservation and he likewise was obliged to retreat, after the example of the maid. This good woman was, no more than Othello, of a disposition to make a life of jealousy, and follow still the changes of the moon with fresh suspicions. With her, as well as him, to be once in doubt was once to be resolved. She therefore ordered Jenny immediately to pack up her alls and be gone for that she was determined she should not sleep that night within her walls. Mr. Partridge had profited too much by experience to interpose in a matter of this nature. He therefore had recourse to his usual recipe of patience, for though he was not a great adept in Latin, he remembered and well understood the advice contained in these words, Leve fit quod bene fertur onus. In English, a burden becomes lightest when it is well borne which he had always in his mouth, and of which, to say the truth, he had often occasion to experience the truth. Jenny offered to make protestation of her innocence, but the tempest was too strong for her to be heard. She then betook herself to the business of packing, for which a small quantity of brown paper sufficed, and having received her small pittance of wages, she returned home. The schoolmaster and his consort passed their time unpleasantly enough that evening, but something or other happened before the next day, which a little abated the fury of Mrs. Partridge, and she at length admitted her husband to make his excuses, to which she gave the readier belief, as he had, instead of desiring her to recall Jenny, professed a satisfaction in her being dismissed, saying she was grown of little use as a servant, spending all her time in reading, and was become, moreover, very pert and obstinate, for indeed she and her master had lately had frequent disputes in literature, in which, as hath been said, she was become greatly his superior. This, however, he would by no means allow, and as he called her persisting in the right, obstinacy, he began to hate her with no small inveteracy. End of chapter 3